This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sylvia Spring about her debut story, The Home Front, which appeared in issue 20 of The Common last fall. Sylvia Spring is the foreign policy lead on TikTok's U.S. public policy team. Prior to joining TikTok, she spent three years as Airbnb's foreign policy manager. Sylvia was a foreign service officer with the U.S. Department of State from 2010 to 2017, serving in the Office of the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and the U.S. Mission to the Organization of American States. She started her career at Newsweek as a special correspondent based in London and reported from Kenya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Sylvia Spring, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Emily. I'm really happy to be here. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just tell us where you're, where you're living, where you're calling from. Yeah, um, I live in D.C. I actually just moved into the district last week from um, Bethesda. Um, so, so, yeah, calling you from, from the nation's capital. Great. And what's the weather like there today? Sunny and hot. It's basically summer here already. I'm I'm from Boston, and so it's always um, kind of a shock that uh, the warm weather arrives like so early and so quickly. But um, yeah, it's I think it's going to hit ninety today. Wow. Yeah, we only uh, I'm in Western Massachusetts right now, so not that different from Boston, and we only just got our first really hot day yesterday, and we suffered. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as I saw Katie, I wanted to live there. Concrete steps led up to the front door of the house, past a flower bush, fallen petals caught like fish in a net of branches. She opened the door and said, with her cartoon hi-ho enthusiasm, well, you must be our Emily, and led me in past the living room, down the stairs to meet James, her boyfriend. I had found the room through a handwritten ad tacked up in the University of London Student Union, and they had invited me over right away. James was tall, long-limbed, with dark hair he had to brush away from his eyes before shaking my hand. Katie busied herself cleaning, washing a frying pan whose nonstick surface had burnt off in the middle, and then rinsing the plates under a swan-necked faucet. She used huge squeezes of soap for each piece, and put the dishes onto the drying rack with suds still sliding off. A candle burned in a glass jar by the sink, sending out its perfume like a small hot bouquet. Katie was beautiful, magazine gorgeous with a narrow face and thick brown hair that stopped a few inches below her shoulders. It was 11 o'clock in the morning, and once her hands were dry again, she poured herself a full glass of red wine. Thanks for reading that. Would you 
describe what the piece is about for our listeners who may not have read the story yet? Um, absolutely. Uh, so this is the story of um, Emily, uh, a young woman who travels to London to do a master's degree in gender studies. And she lives with uh, Katie and James, this very glamorous couple with whom she becomes um, enamored and, and pretty invested in. Um, it takes place around 2003. Um, so the U.S. and the U.K. are involved in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And those wars um, are kind of, you know, in the background simmering and, and work as kind of, you know, these magnets in the story attracting the characters' attention and interest and kind of shaping how, you know, they make decisions about their futures. Um, and kind of most directly with Emily because her brother, George, is in the military and deployed to Afghanistan um, during, during this story. Perfect. Thanks for that summary. So this story is your debut, your, your first piece of published fiction. Yes. And I think for listeners who might not know, editors like me, we love to find a debut piece. It, it's <laughs> very selfishly, it's really special for us to be part of that big first step for a writer. We like to, you know, be part of that. And so when I first read your story in the submission queue, that's that's one of the things that jumped out at me was that this was going to be a debut if we published it. And the other thing that grabbed me about this story is that it's about a 20-something woman in London figuring out her life. And that was basically the story of my 20s as well. <laughs> and my name is Emily, so it was extra weird. It's so cool my story found you. I love that. <laughs> and I think I think also maybe like that was a little bit your story too. Like I know you spent time in London when you were young. Would you talk more about the inspiration behind this piece, like how it came together for you, like from life experience and, and not from life experience? Yeah, yeah. And I've had a few readers ask me like how autobiographical – um, it is, um, and certainly there's a lot of me and Emily, but but in the other characters as well. Um, so nine eleven, nine eleven happened. I was a junior in college um, and about to start my study abroad year in London, um, and then I actually went back after graduation, did a master's there, and worked there for several years. So you know that whole experience of being an expat for the first time at a time where you know there were um you know we were entering this phase of the, the war on terror at a time when i was kind of you know figuring out what i was going to do with my life as were you know all my friends um definitely all of those experiences um you know shaped the story and, and a lot of a lot of what what happened to me in london and in those years i i kind of gave um to emily um, but, you know, I, I also, I ended up, um, you know, I, I majored in English, but then, um, and, and graduated with that major, but then went on to, you know, my senior year, did a, took a lot of poli-sci classes and development classes and did a master's in development studies. And so it did kind of make me pivot um, to kind of, uh, you know, the foreign policy world and kind of like, um, you know, George, Emily's younger brother, and, you know, James, the, the man she lives with in the story, I, w I was really pulled and attracted by um, all that was going on, you know, in, in those countries and, and ended up, you know, traveling to Iraq and Afghanistan as a reporter um, and, and also traveling there later when, when I worked at the State Department. So, so I think there's, there's, there's some of me in, in, in almost every single one of the characters. It's funny to me how how similar experiences were, although my, mine were a little later because I also yeah. did my junior year abroad um, at UCL, which is part part of the University of London mm -hmm. Union, which you mentioned in the piece, and um, and then I ended up doing a master's there and living there and working for a couple of years, although not not in foreign policy. <laughs> um, and when I first lived there, and it was 2007, and Bush was still the president, and mm -hmm. he had sort of dragged the UK into the war in Iraq. 
um, which was very, very unpopular in the UK, yes. I think. Yes. I think now in the US, we have this feeling that it wasn't popular here, but I think actually it, it was quite quite acceptable here. And in the UK, it was just like, no one, no one was there for it. Yes. And, yeah. and pe- people were sometimes kind of hostile towards me. And, and I often felt like I needed to sort of apologize for being American or clarify that I didn't support Bush or I didn't support the war. And I feel like that tension definitely exists in this story. We, we see Katie and James arguing about the war and we see Emily's position is sort of complicated because her brother is a soldier, but she has mixed feelings about the war. How did you navigate that space in the story, like that specific conflict? Yeah, I think you and I, even though there are some years in between, I mean, these wars have gone so on so long that, <laughs> that we probably had pretty similar experiences. And I wanted to explore that with Emily because, you know, at home, she, you know, doesn't really understand her brother's decision to enlist, why he wants to kind of go to, you know, be part of these awful wars that make no sense to her. Um, and I think you're right for, for maybe like an older generation back in 2001 or 2002, 2003, there was like some understanding that it might be the right thing to do, but I think for younger people, um, you know, less so, um, you know, and, and then she, you know, goes over to the UK and, and people are, yeah, hostile. Like why is, you know, Tony Blair, George W. Bush's poodle and why is he falling into the, you know, how can we trust him and why does he trust Bush? Um, and then when she's there, you know, you can't help but feel like you want to, you know, defend your country and, and who you are and, um, and certainly your family. Um, you know, if, if you have a brother over there, you, you don't want to say that it's, that it's all for nothing. So, you know, I, I felt a little bit of, of that um, for myself. And, and yeah, so I tried to ramp it up even more um, for Emily to kind of explore that a little further. Um, you know, you're at home, you're, you're like this nuanced person. And, you know, then you go overseas and you're like an American. And I remember I, I would even have friends who are like all British. And then they, I remember I was like, hang out with a bunch of British friends. Um, and I was like, it was when I was leaving and they had this nice like leaving party for me. And then they're like, oh, we're really going to miss your Americanness. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, like, oh, we're going to miss your Americanness. And I was like, oh, I, no, that's just my personality. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I just had no idea what they meant by that. But yeah, when you, when you, when you're some, when you're in another country, you kind of have to stand for all these things that, that are kind of invisible for, to you in your home. And so, yeah, I did want to look into that, into that for Emily. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had forgotten how that felt, but um, <laughs> yeah, you're a little bit all the time representative of your country and, and you know, trying to be the better part of that. But, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, you embedded with the U.S. military in, in 2007, 2008 as a journalist. Can you talk about what that was like and, and how you think that experience filtered into this story, like both for Emily and for her, her brother who is in Afghanistan? Yeah. Um, so, so I was working for Newsweek at the time and, um, I first went to Afghanistan in 2007 and I was like begging to go. I mean, it just felt kind of similar to like how, again, George, the kind of George James perspective, I felt like, you know, I was a reporter and this was like the biggest story of my generation. You know, when at those years that I was at Newsweek in London, there were, you know, terrorist attacks on the city, like om- almost every summer or some kind of plot that was being foiled. And, um, and of course, these were kind of like, you know, satellite incidents to like the main event, which I felt was like going on in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, um, you know, I, I really wanted to go. And, and so they sent me on this three week um, embed um, to Afghanistan. And I went to Paktika province with the um, 101st Airborne. 
Um, and I got to this base and there were just, I was 26 at the time. And like all these soldiers, men and women were so much younger than I was not so much younger, but when you're 26, like 22 and 21 and, and it like feels like, you know, children. And they were so young. They all, a lot of them were married with like children back home and they were dealing with like their wives, which were back on, you know, some base in the States and like communicating with them and all these like issues. And, and, um, you know, there was one guy I met there who was um, from Boston as well. And we kind of connected over that. And he like pulled out his wallet and he pulled out this like crumpled up piece of paper. And he had basically like torn off the top of the Boston Globe. And I had never noticed this, but behind, you know, the lettering of the Boston Globe, there's like the Boston skyline. Mm-hmm. And he like, he was so homesick. He was like carrying around this thing. And I, I wish I had gotten that detail into the story because I just remember it so well. Um, but I just, you know, I just felt so empathetic for their like situation. And that, that really stayed with me. And I wanted to, I wanted to write about it and, and kind of put it somewhere. And so, um, and so, yeah, you have through most of the story, Emily kind of imagining her brother there and she kind of, you know, he, he's sending her and her parents, you know, emails weekly to let them know that he's safe. Um, but it's only when they're both home that, that, you know, she's able to get out of him, like at least a, a, a little glimpse of like, um, you know, the real story, there's a little crack there where he talks about a time he was, he was really scared. Um, and, um, and, and, and yeah, I, I wanted to put that in for, for Emily and George that, that, um, there'd be this, this, you know, dynamic that, that he was like really vulnerable out there, but was trying to, trying to protect them by putting up a, putting up a tough front. Yeah, I think that that moment is it's almost I mean, I think it is the end of the story. Yeah. Um th- this experience he has where he is really scared and and it really feels like the only moment where we feel how vulnerable he is and and maybe that Emily feels it. Mm-hmm. Um and and yeah, it feels really powerful because he has been having that stiff upper lip the whole story and and the war has felt like this sort of abstract thing until that moment, yeah. I mean, what's funny about being over there I also felt is like so much of it can be really um, like boring, you know, you're like, yeah, cause I'd go out on like patrols and would drive around, then would come back and then you sleep and then you, you know, it's like so boring until it's like terrifying, you know? And so I, I also um, wanted to, you know, th- there were so many like mundane details and routines you can kind of like get into to, to pass the time when you're away from home for George and I guess for Emily as well. Um, but, but, but there is that real danger that that's kind of lurking. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what does it really look like to Im- to embed with the military? Like, how long are you there? Like, are you are you driving around? Are you going places? Like, do you stay where they stay? I think it really varies, and it's probably changed since mm-hmm. I did it. But you kind of, as a member of the press, you can put in a request, and you can go and kind of be, like, embedded with them. Um, and, you know, the idea, I think, as a reporter is you, you wouldn't want them to do anything special for you that would be out of their normal routine because you wouldn't want them to be putting themselves in, like, undue mm-hmm. da- danger, you know, because you're there. Because if something happens, you, you would not want to be responsible for, for their being in that situation. Um, but they can't help but want to, like, show off for you and take you around <laughs> and make sure you see things. And so um, it can kind of, uh, you know, it, it can kind of be, like, a little bit of a dance. And, you know, especially in Afghanistan, that was, that was my first time. Like, everything they said, like, we were going to do, we, we just we just did. But you're, ba- you're basically supposed to just be there living with them and observing kind of kind of what they're doing and, and reporting on reporting on the mission and also their kind of like day-to-day operations. That makes sense. One of the things I most related to in this story was Emily's feeling that she's not really part of the world in London. 
Mm-hmm. At one point in the story, she says, when you're living in a country that isn't your own, you sometimes feel you're in a theater. For me in London that year, I was seated in the audience. And, and I, you know, I think I felt that a little bit too. Uh, mm-hmm. Was it hard to write a story where your protagonist is, is more observing things than, than actually driving the plot herself? Um, no, I think, um, as someone who writes stories and enjoys writing, I myself am often like feel like an observer. And I think, I actually think that's why I love traveling because then I can just be very comfortable in my like observer status, (laughs) you know, whether it's like a short trip and you're touring somewhere or, you know, when I was with the state department, I went and lived in China and definitely felt like an outsider and observer for a lot of, you know, the, the life in Beijing that, that I saw there. Um, and, and so I, th- I think naturally that's like my view of the world a lot of the time. Um, so, so with this story, um, so, so when I write in the first person, as in this case, I think that's kind of my default to have her arrive and have, you know, James and, um, Katie kind of dancing around and it's so entertaining and distracting. And also in the story, it works because it's distracting from, um, you know, what she's thinking about her like parents and about George. Um, and so actually in revisions, I, something I worked on was kind of inserting Emily more strongly so that, um, and like you, Emily and I, you and I <laughs> talked the real person, Emily, I'm speaking to now, you and I talked about this, I think in like some of the like edits we worked on just having her kind of articulate for herself and the reader what she was looking for so that there could be more of an arc of what she was expecting and having those expectations um, not met. So I, I think I almost had, you know, the opposite problem in this story that I, that I, the first time I, that each time I revised it, I, I was thinking about how to insert Emily more into it. That's really interesting. Do you think it like, would you compare this to other stories you've written and say that that's like something that you often do, or do you think it was kind of unique to this experience of Emily being that person abroad who isn't really part of the action? Um, you know, I've, I've been trying to write more th- third person I've, I've tried to do a little bit more third person um lately to see um to see if I can like kind of shake things up a bit yeah I, I do think like as a writer it's it's my my natural um my natural position is like the first person kind of observing stuff that's going on and, and it's something I've been trying to kind of work on yeah as a writer I think Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That's interesting. Yeah, I do often find the first person to be easier. Yeah, um, yeah, it is easier to disappear into. I think, but um, but you know, that said, I most often write in the third person. I think I prefer it in the end. Uh, you and I did work on some edits, as you mentioned, to prepare mm-hmm. this piece for publication. And in my m- memory, they were fairly minor, like you said, like sort of strengthening certain elements, like Emily's desires and personality, and like clarifying a few things and bringing mm-hmm. forward some elements and some dynamics. But I'm wondering how much revising you did on your own before you submitted the piece. Like, how different is this this story we published from the first draft? Um, I don't think I don't think super different. Though I did the the first draft, I wrote probably 
like over 10 years ago, actually, for a fiction workshop I took at um, Grub Street in Boston. I don't know how familiar you are with Grub Street, but for anyone yeah, in the Boston area, yeah, it's, it's like a great place to work on your craft. Um, and, you know, I wasn't like working on the story for 10 years, but I like, I wrote it and then I workshopped it and then I kind of made some edits and then I thought about it and then I like workshopped it again. And then, it, so like Emily and her story and kind of, as I said, the, the um, experiences I kind of, you know, gave Emily from my own experience, I, I liked they were like in this, in this place and in this story. And it was like, I, I was, I was thinking about it for, for a while. And then I, and then I finally dusted it off um, a couple, I guess, like a, a little over a year ago, um, and, and worked on it again and, and then su- submitted it. Um, and I had one of the, my instructors say to me that I, I guess there, you know, there's this saying that like the desk drawer is like the best editor, you know, that there, there's something about like putting, <laughs> putting a story away for a while and then coming back to it that can be, that can be, um, you know, really, really beneficial. I mean, I could have written, and I think there was even a scene or two that we cut from the version that I originally submitted. Like, you know, and I'm sure maybe, I don't know if you've written about your experience in, in London, but there are just so many like interesting observations about being like, you know, abroad and being there at that time and experiences I want to like, you know, give to Emily. But, you know, ultimately I had to think about like what was actually doing work for the story and what was just going to be like it's already kind of a long story and I would say it's already like a, a kind of long, quiet story. So it didn't need like more descriptions of, you know, meals <laughs> or parties and so, and so kind of like say, saying goodbye to those elements, I, th- I think ultimately strengthened the story. Yeah. It's funny that you say that. I think I haven't written very much about living in London because I am already a, a very naturally nostalgic person. And yeah. I think it it gives such gravity and importance and meaning to these small observations to me, but I am not sure that that is universal. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be like my feeling, especially, you know, who's not nostalgic about a really formative time in their life, you know, like a place where you went and did things on your own and, and learned what kind of person you were outside totally. of your hometown. I know. I, I was thinking when I was like thinking about um, like our conversation, I, I was thinking how like sometimes like, you know, going overseas or going to a new place, it can kind of be this like shortcut to adulthood. You know what I mean? Totally. And like, um, you know, either if you're like, just go for a job or you're studying or you're certainly if you're like, you know, deployed somewhere, you just, you're, you kind of like, yeah, it's like this shortcut to like growing up and figuring out like who you are, like kind of from scratch and, you know, deciding who you're going to be. So I think, yeah, I think, I think it's a good setting, good setting, a good setting for a story, good occasion for a story. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about it for for my my next novel, but I yeah I I worry about exactly the thing you're saying, which is that everything about that time feels important to me, mm-hmm. and so I, I just worry that I would just be be awful and just write every little detail, and no no one would ever want to read it, or maybe you would want to read it, and no one else would want to read it. I'll totally read it. I'll totally read it. But uh, but also I think like the other thing I was going to say about that is is I. I think this is true, but like, I like to think that even all those like other scenes that I cut ultimately helped me figure out like who Emily was. And so they're not in the story, but they're like, like, I know her and I know what she would do like at that party. And it, it helps strengthen like the rest of the story. What, what does like ultimately get printed, you know, like you can write a lot of stuff and cut it, but it, it helps you like work out a lot of stuff about your characters, I think. Yes. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I just think there was something about like, even writing about it, that's definitely true that I would imbue these, these small experiences with like great emotional heft because of what they mean to me. Mm-hmm. But I also think that like, while I was experiencing them, even while I was in London, I felt that they had 
greater importance simply because I was abroad. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So it was such a cheat. I think kind of like you say to like adulthood, <laughs> I was like, these are really profound experiences I'm having. They're really exciting and extra fun and extra important and extra impressive simply because I am not doing them where I'm from. <laughs> I totally agree. Actually, I don't know if you've like been back to London to visit, but I went a couple of years ago, like pre-COVID. And there were so many things I saw there that I realized like I am the way I am because I learned how to do it there. Like how they just yeah. love like the long walks in the park and like mm-hmm. the like rainy days, like the country walks. And I don't know, I'm trying to think of what else. Just just like there, there's so many things that I like recognize that I, I had taken from there when I when I went back as like a, a grown up person. So um, I don't think it's just your imagination. I think it really did form you. <laughs> it really yeah. was important. <laughs> Yeah. And I I also think, you know, people sometimes make fun of things that I say, you know, like instead of calling the trash, calling the trash, I call it the garbage or or I call it the bin or whatever. (laughs) And like, I'm not faking that. Like when I first had to take out the trash, I was in a different country. (laughs) Exactly. But the thing is when you get home, I don't know if this is your experience, like people are very intolerant of like things you can (laughs) do. Like you can't call pants like trousers or like crisps. You know, people like my family had like there was no like it wasn't cute even for a little bit. They were like, no, No. you're you're home. Yeah, leave it. (laughs) No. Yeah, that's that is true. So I was going to ask you, you said you went back to London a couple of years ago. I have certainly been back to London um, many, many times. Um, I ended up marrying a, a British man, so oh, nice. I, I had a good okay. excuse to go back often. Yeah, <laughs> so it did really form you. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> it was important, did, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the the common publishers work with a modern sense of place, and I, I you know, as, as stated, I am very biased, and I love to read a story about London. But I think that you really evoked that feeling of walking around the city and and this neighborhood that she lives in, south of the river, and and really grounded us in the city and and these parks in in North London, Hampstead, where they mm-hmm. swim. I would just like, did you mostly do that from memory? Did you just pull it together or did you like, was it hard to, to place Emily in these specific places? Uh, no, I, I mean, I was just saying like my, my, like how much I like love walking, like from, I used to just take these like monster walks all over the city all the time. And they're like, Mm -hmm. just so like firmly in my mind, like one job I had when I was at Newsweek, we had, um, we had our office in Oxford circus and I would walk, um, all the way down to Stockwell which is like actually like a couple hours, maybe like yeah. an hour and a half. But yeah, I would just do these like monstrous walks and they're so good for thinking, you know, walking and thinking are so like, um, so linked, um, for me. Um, so yeah, no, I, I could do, I could do that all, all from memory. Um, where did, where did you live when you lived in London? Um, I mostly lived in Finsbury park. So I, I was very strictly North London. Yeah, but I did. I worked in Vauxhall for many years. And so nice. I, I I went south of the river every day. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I would walk by yeah. that train station, that tube station on my, on my long march home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, I, de- we definitely did the long walks too. Like that was my favorite. I felt like it was the only way I could get to know the city and get to mm-hmm. know the place was to walk around because, you know, you get on the tube or you get on a bus and you just end up disoriented. And I, that was how I really figured things out was just walking around. The bus and you know, is good. I like the bus because you can yeah. kind of like be up top and like look around. Mm-hmm. Also, the other difference when I visited just a few years ago is like having a smartphone was so different. I, I don't yes. know. It's like when you were first there, it was probably like just before. But like I remember like you would ask people like how to get to some station. Everyone had like a different version and a different bus route or you could go here and wait for this other bus and or take this like tube. And when you have a phone, it's just it's like a game changer of like how to how to get everywhere. So um yeah, I, f- I feel it was like not a whole like social, like 
event to like decide how you were going to get from one place to the next. You could just kind of do it privately, like yeah, on your phone. That's very different. That's definitely true. When I first lived there, um, I didn't. No one had smartphones. Um, and yeah, you had to kind of figure out a walking route and like memorize it or write it down. <laughs> But but it was like that was really how I figured out how to get places and and then you know yeah, yeah. and then I could give directions to other people which is very exciting. That's a great moment. Yeah. yeah yeah. And I also I mean I'm sure you saw this like since the Olympics in London, they put up so much more signage, enabling people to walk around who might not have smartphones. Like every 100 feet, there's like a little display that shows you what's within a five minute walking range and, and what's the next station and all these things. So it's like, it's much more navigable than That's it used very to be. helpful. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, sometimes deciphering like the bus route, it would just a bunch of dots with names of places and you're like, I don't know where. Any- <laughs> yeah. I was never as comfortable with the buses. Cause I, I, I've, yeah, I was mostly, I mostly took the tube. Yeah. Um, I, also think besides London, you and I have one other thing in common, which is that we're writers, but we don't have MFAs in writing. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and I, I think many of our listeners um, may be writers themselves and might not have MFAs. So I was wondering, like, w- I think they would like to hear how you got to this level with your writing. Like, you obviously have a very big natural talent, but how did you commit to writing and, and build your craft over the years? Like, from your bio, it seems like you've done writing on the side of some very, very intense full-time jobs in foreign policy. So, so do you have advice for others kind of doing writing on the side and kind of developing it themselves? Yeah, I think, um, I, I I've done like a lot of workshops, like doing writing, doing courses at Grub Street, um, really helped. And then here in the DC area, there's, you know, politics and prose and there's a writing center in Bethesda. Um, and those are all great, like kind of like six or eight week, like, you know, cycles to, to get you going. I mean, I think what you really need is, or what I really need is like a group of people that are going to like expect your work at a, at a certain time. If you say I'm submitting a story for like next week and then who will just like, you just need like their attention on it. And just knowing that people are going to like read what you submit seriously and give you like thoughtful feedback and, and, you know, think about these made up people you've created um, is like so motivating for me. So, so from the workshops I've done, I now have a group that's just an informal group of people. And now it's on zoom, like almost everything. And we just meet every other week and, and share our work and everyone's writing totally different stuff. There's a lot of memoir and nonfiction and a little bit of fiction. Um, but yeah, so it's just a group of people that I know are going to like take what I sent to them seriously. So I find that super motivating. And I have another, um, workshop group actually it's a group from grub street that is also virtual now that is um we did like you know one eight week session we're doing a second one now so so just just finding people whether you have to like pay for it or not that will that will kind of take your writing seriously and and um and give you like very honest feedback um i I think is great you know i I try sometimes to convince myself that like reading is helping my writing i'm sure it does (laughs) but it's you know i just love reading and sometimes i'll be like I'm just going to like read this afternoon instead of writing. And that, that is like not true. I mean, I, I'm saying this like more to myself, you know, like there's nothing like sitting down and like writing your own stuff. Um, so, so, um, so I, I need that motivation of, of, you know, people that are going to hold me accountable um, and, and give me good feedback. Um, and then, you know, I've tried also like the morning pages where like every morning you write like, I think it's like four pages and you can like throw it out and that's fine. I, I tried doing that, but 
but more what I do is I just have like a blank notebook on my desk. And sometimes when I take like a long walk with my dog now, and I like just get this idea, I just write down like everything I can think about with that idea, whether it's like a scene or like a concept or like a memory. And, and then when I like sit down to write, I like have something to like, I have my own like handwritten notes to copy from, and that can be kind of like a jump start into, into something which I find really helpful. Yeah, I do think that's a good suggestion. It's definitely how I I got started. Was like yeah. it was too stressful to, to think like I'm going to write a story, and so I would just write down a ton of notes, mm-hmm. and then eventually your notes become a story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's a little more painless. Yeah. Um. So so at Grub Street, you did kind of workshop stuff, and do they also have like craft classes, like like really specific kind of teaching? Or I'm sure they do. I took just the fiction workshops. I think I did. Mm-hmm. I did two workshops there, and, and really liked it. Um, and often you can just even just find like one other person in the class who like either you just really like their work or it's similar to yours and you can like agree you're going to trade stories. Um, and I've done that too, which is, which is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, yeah, I did kind of a similar thing. Yeah. Like I found like a local workshop and, and mostly I didn't have a lot of affinity with the other people in it, but there was like one other person who I'm still in touch with and we sometimes share work and and you know you 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 always get something out of it, even if it's just forcing you to write something like you said that you know people are going to take seriously and that you have to take seriously as well. Yeah. And and be also being able to like um, you know read other people's stories and read thing and figure out what's like not working and what is working. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you can't only read like you know George Saunders stories <laughs> and expect it to like <laughs> you know transport. Like it, it's good also to see like you know, to like, you know, the back of the machine and how like, how different things are working, think like, oh, that doesn't work. And maybe that's something I do that like doesn't work as well. Or maybe they did something like really awesome. And I want to like copy it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I think also like learning from other people's, you know, mistakes and and wins is also super helpful. Yeah, that is a very smart point. You really can't often, I don't want to say always, but you can't often look at like a Lauren Groff story or a George Mm -hmm. Saunders story. And understand why it works yeah. and, and what you should learn from it. But I have definitely learned a lot from reading other people's work, mm-hmm. especially when it's flawed. And I mean, I, you know, I'm lucky that as an editor, I read a ton of other people's yes. work. Um, so I've gotten better at, at noticing that. But I think in the beginning, I mean, writing just feels like, like this like magic alchemical process and you can't discern any any sort of lesson in reading it, whether it's good yeah. or bad. Yeah, I know. I mean, sometimes you like open up the New Yorker and you start their fiction, st- and you're like, "What? Like, I just don't get it. It doesn't pull me. In. I don't know." And and you need to like, you, you need to like talk about it because <laughs> because that's how you learn. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I've been really enjoying the New Yorker. Like very often when they publish a story, they'll publish a Q and A with the author about the story. Oh yeah, and and so like I very often read a story and love it, but I want to understand like why it's working or why yeah. it exists, and then I can follow up with the Q and A and sort of like pull it apart a little bit, which I like. I like that too. They have another. Um, I think their fiction podcast as well. I'm a huge fan of, and they'll have whoever is the author of like the current. I think they only do it monthly. So they pick one person who's written a story for the magazine and that person picks their favorite story from the archives and discusses it and reads it aloud and discusses it with the editor. And I love that too, because just hearing what like, um, you know, like the editor has liked about it and what the, you know, the new author has liked about it. I I love hearing that discussions too. So I, I highly recommend it. 
Yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, their podcasts. Yeah, I've, I've listened to them a lot. I recently did a road trip, and it was like all the New Yorker the whole way. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, we um, my so I live in like the DC area, and my parents are still up in Boston. So when we drive up in the summer, it's like all it's all fiction podcast. <laughs> I just I really I really like being like read aloud too. Too, I think it, it must like remind me of being a kid or something. But um, yeah, I really like like the books on tape and the, and especially the short stories because it it can you can just like listen for a little bit and then take a, take a little break, but. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Totally. Um, I w- uh, so you've worked in foreign policy for almost all of your life. Yeah, I, I guess if you count reporting, yeah, it's foreign policy as well. Yeah, that's kind of what I've done. Um, do you have any like sort of general observations or like I don't know? I'm just thinking about like the ebb and flow of world politics and how things <laughs> change and come to a head and then sort of sink away. Like, do you have any sort of like thoughts on either the present moment or like how things have felt while you've been doing this, like in the years that you've been doing this? Um, yeah, I've seen like, uh, there's, there's been a lot of change. Yeah. I mean, from, from George W. Bush and, and reporting, um, you know, uh, at Newsweek during that time. I mean, I was always based in London or Nairobi, so I didn't do like you know, U.S. domestic politics at all. So it's a little bit removed. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, certainly being in D.C. for, you know, Obama's eight years in office and then four years of Trump and now Biden, um, you know, I, I think I think there was, um, you know, I, I was at state when Trump was elected and came into office and people who are at the State Department and in the Foreign Service are like are such good Americans that mm-hmm. they like people were upset. They really bottled it up and pushed it down, and probably all needed a lot of therapy afterwards. But people like they were just <laughs> such a stiff upper lip, but like also um, like like just terror and confusion. Um, and and I left the department like shortly after that, um, but. Um, you know, I, I think it's still <clears throat> early days um, for Biden. There's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people who serve in the Obama administration who kind of were waiting in the wings at different DC <laughs> think tanks to like get back in, and now they're back in, and, and it's great. But um, you know, they can't. We can't just continue Obama's, you know, policy because there has been this break, which has kind of, you know, um, challenged our credibility on the world stage. And so I think, um, you know, I, I think figuring out how to, you know, develop their own policy and figure out what, you know, Biden's, Biden's like Mark is going to be, um, and have it be different from Obama and certainly different from Trump, um, is a challenge, but it, but it's an exciting one. And I think, I think folks who, you know, follow foreign policy here in DC, um, you know, even as things are, you know, evolving and I've like followed, like I focus mainly on like US China dynamics and they're incredibly tense and have probably mm-hmm. like never been worse. Um, mm-hmm. At least there's like, there's some confidence that this administration will take a more systematic approach and um, ha- have, you know, a more make, you know, decisions that are a little bit more systematic and, and predictable. So um yeah, I, th- I think I think it's an exciting time, um, you know, to to be in DC and be be you know follow, following foreign policy. Um, yeah, yeah, it seems like uh, like a rebuilding period, maybe in terms of like like you said, like sort of reestablishing the U.S. as like a reliable 
player in the world stage. And I, yeah, that's not a quick fix. <laughs> it's not a quick fix. And, and you see, you see people like you know John Kerry coming back. He was a Secretary of State. Now he's a Special mm-hmm. Climate Envoy. And you know, I, I can't think of a better person for the for the job. But it, but it's also a tough one for him because. Um, you know, he did so much work on climate, so much work on Iran when he was mm-hmm. um, Secretary of State, you know, now four plus years ago. And now he's back and, um, you know, he has to build back, you know, all that trust and, and also have his counterparts, you know, believe that anything they agree to now is, is going to stick, you know, unlike last time. So, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, I think it's a tough position for a lot of officials that are, you know, are coming from the Obama administration back into this one um, to kind of, you know, re- reassert themselves. Um, For sure. And build yeah. trust. So. Yeah. Cause someone like John Kerry, he had to make them make, you know, build this trust up and then it was dashed through no fault of his own. Yeah. And now, now he has to try to rebuild it without, well, you, without be, having been responsible for the break in it in the first place. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I know at least like, you know, before all the, before the transition, there was some anxiety about like, you know, the U.S. is back, but, you know, is everyone going to let them back to the head of the table after they've been gone? And mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I guess I, I guess we'll see. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like an interesting time. For sure. Time. Yeah. So always the last question in the podcast is what are you working on now? Like what's next from you? Um, so I've been working on building a collection of um, intersecting Short stories. I try to work on a novel. I'm very jealous that you're like a novelist because um, I, I, <laughs> I'm not I, sure we can say that yet. <laughs> I think I am just like a short story writer, and I tried to write this novel actually like set in Beijing, and it just kept like ending. <laughs> you know, like it just like I just it just kept like tying it, wanting to tie itself up over and over again. So I've kind of like abandoned that for now. But but I'm excited about this project because. You know, it started with this story I wrote about these two characters. It's a friend um, visiting her, you know, visiting another friend. She's just gotten married and is in this, like, you know, old house in the Cape she's just bought. And I workshopped it and someone was like, you know, I just feel like both these characters are, like, headed for disaster. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to write that disaster. I want to know what that disaster is, too. And so I kind of wrote a follow-on story. And then, like, one of these characters is, like, super selfish and I was like I want to write the story before this that kind of like explains mm-hmm. why she would be that anyway and so I've been it's kind of been like growing organically but I, I'm just like really enjoying like the intersections and it also is um it's like giving me all these ideas for like starting off points like once I'm kind of like done with one I have all these different like characters in it that I can that I can follow if I want to so um so yeah I've been I've been working on that and I'm excited about how it's going so far that makes sense that, that it would help help with the idea flow. So so you think of it as sort of like a linked short story collection or maybe like a novel in stories? Yes, I think. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Or say, I, I just heard this term story cycle. Have you heard that? Oh, nice. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> but it sounds even better. I'm like, I'm working, working on a story cycle. So um, that's great. Yeah. I'm glad you're working on that. Yeah. So Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you. Really fun. Uh, you too. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, you can read Sylvia's story, The Home Front, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.